because you're jumping back into the gut. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Excited to welcome Bryce Tully to the podcast. Bryce is the co-founder and CEO of InnerLogic, a platform devoted to helping organizations optimize their culture, leadership, and emotional intelligence. He is also a mental performance coach with the Canadian Olympic team, specializing in team dynamics, self-regulation, and environmental design. Bryce is regarded as a top mindset and culture expert, as well as a key innovator in the space of social-emotional measurement. Bryce, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So excited to be here. Excited to talk to you and uh, some real good stuff happening at InterLogic and all the different stuff. I've heard your name for so long, so it's going to be great to talk to you. Uh, getting right into it a little bit, uh, you know, one of the things that you said is being able to accurately label and identify how you're feeling in the present moment. For instance, in the midst of an argument with a player, saying to yourself, I'm feeling frustrated right now. Talk to me about how that's valuable that we can label something and how that affords us better data to work with. Yeah, so um, good research, by the way. I'm, I'm going through the recesses of my mind as to where that exact uh, moment or quote came from, and I think I I, I know where you got it. But um, yeah, so this this kind of concept of name it to tame it, like from an emotional intelligence standpoint, super important um, because it it puts you into a different category or bucket of of emotional processing. So when you label yourself as the emotion, like I'm frustrated, I am frustrated. And you take that word feeling out of it, you you kind of bake into the process like an aspect of permanence, like this is who I am now. And as a result, your brain actually starts playing the role of that thing because you've identified with it so strongly. So the reframing of that or the sort of like decoupling of the identification of that emotion is to, to put that um, less permanent word of feeling in the middle. Because we inherently all know sort of at a deep level that feelings come and go. They're not who we are. They're not permanent. They're just a part of this moment. So when you get to that stage of being able to identify I'm feeling frustrated, it allows you to work on that EQ skill where you can actually start to figure out sort of that like that matrix in your mind of what are the what are the general outcomes that happen when I'm feeling frustrated? What are the types of behaviors that I engage in in this particular state? And do I like those? Are those helpful for me in this situation? All of that becomes a lot more possible when you kind of identify it properly versus becoming frustration, like you become a new character almost. So that's kind of the nature of that uh, EQ skill. I love it. And I wanted to get right to something practical. We're going to talk about emotional intelligence, of course, but the, the simple thing, name it to tame it, I am feeling versus I am. And an example of that is it basically, I am feeling mad instead of saying I am mad, that you're just acknowledging that this experience is temporary. Can you give us some other examples yeah. like that in coaching? Yeah, so I'm even going to back up a, a little bit more because there's another aspect of this that I think is really important, like just foundationally that people understand is one thing that our brain really loves the most is to be right. So imagine a world where your brain is constantly unsure if it's making the right decisions. It, that would be a very, very um, turbulent place to be. So sort of one of our default sort of hardware settings, I guess, is your brain does like to assume that it's right or on the right track. And so if you start to identify too strongly with something, your brain will actually start to create a story that proves that that's true. So if you start to say, I'm mad or I'm frustrated or I'm whatever that, that sort of detrimental emotion is, your brain will actually start to create a self-talk story that makes you feel better about that reality that you've created in the sense that it's actually making it come true. So it's coming up with a bunch of reasons why 
you should be justified in being so frustrated. So that's another part of this that I think is really important. And that's why a lot of athletes and coaches have such a hard time with self-talk. It actually originated at a place of too much identification with the state that you're in. And then of course, your brain's in a situation where if it doesn't prove that story, like where are we, right? Like it's in a very odd place um, mentally for you to be in if you're constantly like, I'm not in a real reality. So your brain just, boom, it starts creating that story that goes, okay, if that's who we are now, I better start forming thoughts that fulfill that. Um, uh, that yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, especially from that self-talk perspective. And uh, as you're talking about this, I'm just wondering, is this something that can be applied beyond f- self-talk and something that we can use actually in our interactions with, say, a player or a coach-to-player relationship uh, in, in terms of we verbalize it in that way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's equally as much power in in coaches and leaders and people who are responsible for helping someone live in the moment in a state that they know is not ideal to help bring some accountability to the situation, but done so accurately. So to say to a player to look them in the eye and say, you're feeling frustrated, that's not going to be helpful in this situation. That identification externally can also trigger that sort of same process um, internally for a player. So I think that's uh, really, really helpful. And then you had a second part, but I've forgotten. Well, I'm just saying, like, if I'm talking to a player, instead of saying, I am mad at you, I am saying, I am, (laughs) what would I say? Like, instead of saying that that way. Mm, Yeah, good question. Um, I think that's almost like a different lens on it because you're now identifying your own experience to help the athletes understand where you are as a coach. So by saying to the players, like, I'm feeling frustrated or um, I'm feeling like um, we're sped up or whatever that case is, um, you know, I think you can apply that language there too. But the second part of this that I think is really important is athletes and coaches, all performers eventually come to the realization, whether it's through great mental training, upskilling, whatever, or just experiences over time, that the ideal performance state does not exist. It's very, 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 very rare. And I remember back in um, my first year of sports psychology training, the ideal performance state was a huge part of this curriculum. And there was all kinds of questions on it. Uh, The ISOP model, like the individual zones of of ideal functioning. Um, But what we know now is you really can't afford to wait to be in the right emotional state to be and play at your best. And that's why I think this concept of identity is so, so, so important because sometimes we get the model reversed. We like to think, or I guess in sort of like the novice stages of, of, you know, putting yourself under pressure in competitive situations is when I feel a certain way, I start acting a certain way. And then I sort of take on this inadvertent identity, but it all originated with an emotional state that was triggered by something outside of ourselves. So an easy example of this is like, I walk into work and my boss says, I got an awesome email from this group that you're working with. They love you. They think your work is so impactful. All of a sudden, I I have all these chemicals flowing through my body. I start acting differently. I'm connecting with everybody. I'm giving other people compliments, yada, yada, yada. And I've inadvertently landed on this identity for today. It's going to exist today and it will not be sustainable moving forward because it originated at that feeling. If you literally just reverse the words, if you have a really clear sense of your identity and what that means, and then you start acting in service of who you must be, who you need to be, who you're proud of being in these really difficult situations, you actually end up feeling some things at the end of that, that are much, much, much more sustainable over time. Most of the important emotions that we feel in life are earned in some way, right? So I think that going through that process of I'm going to live my identity, even through the 
the shitty emotions, even through the times when I feel amazing. I'm going to live the things that uphold that identity. In the end, we end up feeling a lot of things that are really important to performance, like confidence. I know I can show up regardless of how other people make me feel right now. I know I can show up even if my coach says something at halftime that kind of exposed me or, or held me accountable. I know I can show up in those scenarios because how I'm feeling isn't the key performance indicator of how the rest of this is going to go. Does that make sense when you reverse that model? I, I like this a lot. And especially you saying, basically, you're not saying BS, but we shouldn't be spending all this time trying to get to the ideal performance state as much as we should be spending a lot of time with our athletes learning how to cope with not being in the ideal performance state, because that's almost unattainable. Is that basically how I'm interpreting some of this? Absolutely. I mean, your ideal performance state, I would go a step further and say, should be reframed to living your identity through thick and thin. And it all kind of stems back to uh, this concept of identity. What makes up who you are as a player? You know, with with the national team um, leading into uh, world championships in 2018 in Spain, um, we spent months on, on identity and we started at the, the team level. So what's our identity as a team? You know, Brene Brown would say, if, if, every, if you have 20 things on your priority list, you don't have a priority list. So we tried to narrow this down into what are three words associated with, with three powerful images that define who we are? And then we brought that down a level to positional. So what does that mean for our point guards? What does that mean for our shooting guards? What does that mean for our, for our post players? And they have sub-identities that filter up. And that goes down a step further into the individual players. So what is your identity as a point guard who likes to drive the ball, needs to be fast on their feet, beat people, versus your sort of counterpart point guard who has a completely different style of play? And understanding this concept of this is who I am, and I'm going to anchor myself in this Actually, more when things get tough than less, I'm going to come back to this almost like a boomerang. When I'm really pressed, I need to live these three things as the number one, two, and three priority. It does build, I think, a lot of certainty, confidence, clarity, and players to go, you know what? No matter what happens, like here's who I'm going to be. Here's how I'm going to show up. I could feel embarrassed and, and show up as these things. I could feel excited and show up as these things. There's all kinds of emotions out there that I'm able to kind of find the data through the noise and go, but here's who I am. So this is great. Uh, by the way, uh, Lisa Tomaditis, the coach at the, the national team women's coach at the time, she was on episode 91 for coaches as a reference, go back oh, cool. and listen to it. And she talked about driving success by building team identity. So she talked about some of those things mm -hmm. and obviously talked about you in that as well. Um, but the part I want to let, let's let's go all the way back then. What is emotional yeah. intelligence? Let's give people a baseline. What is emotional intelligence and why should we care, particularly as it relates to how does it help us, our players play better and help our team have more success? Yeah, I mean, in the simplest form, emotional intelligence is kind of divided into two categories. It's self-management and others management. And self-management is um the more foundational skill than others, you know, it's like the, the oxygen mask theory, right? Like there's a reason they say to you on a plane, if, if this happens, take care of yourself so you can take care of others, put your oxygen mask on first. That's kind of the flow of emotional intelligence is learning to put on your own oxygen mask, um, knowing how to get oxygen into your own brain and think more clearly so that you can level up to that stage of, of what's in a more mastery category of actually starting to manage others. And it, when I say manage others, it doesn't mean, um, you know, necessarily like dictating or holding accountable. It, it, it means understanding. It means just grasping where is Chris right now? Like, am I able to read his body language? Do I understand that his personality is like this? And when he really shifts to over here, I have a sense of what that means and I can start to give him what he needs because I know what kind of state he's in. 
So emotional intelligence is a mix of those two things. It's self-awareness and others' awareness kind of coming together with a really strong sort of vocabulary um, and ability to recognize both in yourself and others what these different emotional states really mean, um, where they come from, what triggers them, what they're going to result in, and sort of being able to intervene at different stages of that process. So many places we can go with this, but uh, let's get back to some of the practical things because it is learnable, right? EQ is incredibly, incredibly learnable, teachable, and it actually has more of an impact on all kinds of different performance metrics than IQ. And IQ is obviously sort of ancient now, but EQ outperforms IQ uh, in stressful, pressure-induced situations, essentially always compared to IQ. So it's an extremely powerful force or skill to have in situations that require you to manage any sort of stress and complexity with stress and other people feeling stress. So based on that, um, you know, I know you have a number of things that you can recommend that anyone can develop to a greater degree of emotional intelligence. And one of them we already talked about, which is name it to tame it. Can you talk about uh, one of the other kind of strategies? Because we talked about the importance of these type of strategies. Uh, yeah. So I, I think the other thing that's really, really common, um, you know, that I've uh, worked on um, with high performance athletes, coaches, et cetera, and in a variety of fields. And that's the beauty of when I say EQ, I mean, emotional intelligence, but the beauty of EQ is it's so pervasive. It's, it's going to positively affect your ability to perform in this Olympic semifinal. And in that meeting, you have seven years from now when you're at work, <laughs> you know, all of that. And in between and in your family life, it, it, it's kind of everywhere. Ultimately, I, I think what this comes down to is um, someone's ability to create space between stimulus and response. That's the most fundamental aspect of EQ. There is a space in there, but sometimes that space starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where you become extremely unthoughtful, uh, impulsive and really don't take time to process and think about the behaviors that you're engaging in. Mindfulness is a really, really great um, practice to create space between stimulus and response. And, and that's honestly like the, that's like the epitome of what mindfulness does. We could talk about mindfulness forever, but it would always come back to that. You're presented with a distraction, you're presented with a trigger, a challenge, an emotion, whatever it is. And what we don't want to happen is your response to overlap with the trigger or with the stimulus. So partway through the stimulus happening, you're already responding. There's been no space in between to reflect on what's going on. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about reactionary moment skills you know, there's all kinds of situations that require extremely like tight uh, coupling between stimulus and response, but those aren't um, mental performance. Those aren't leadership. Those aren't, you know, these EQ based situations where you actually have the space if you were to take it, but you're just not taking it. So I'm not saying like, you know, this isn't a catch and rip. <laughs> scenario on the basketball court this is someone said something to you in a timeout and you've just you know just had an outburst without ever taking a second to breathe and react or re respond the way that you want hey coach i wanted to take a moment to tell you about a product i love and have used with my teams and now with my daughters in our backyard dr dish use promo code immersion for exclusive savings on any of the machines Dr. Dish Basketball is accelerating player performance with the most innovative game-like training solution available, allowing coaches and players to get better faster than ever before by providing the most usable and advanced shooting machines, on-demand workouts, multiplayer stat tracking, and instant analytics. Dr. Dish Basketball has become the preferred source for basketball training with progressive coaches and players. A reminder, use promo code IMMERSION for 
exclusive savings on any of the machines. So, so practical coping strategy like parking, uh, thought stopping, I've, I don't know what people call it nowadays, but uh, these type of ideas where you have thoughts that you need to become consciously aware of to get rid of, um, stamp it out. I have heard all these types of mistake handling type of methods. Is that something that helps us be more mindful to be able to remove those thoughts? Yeah, I, I'm all for, you know, there's all kinds of evidence-based things that exist out there. And I think the most important thing is that people find uh, a mental model or a strategy. When I say a mental model, I mean, something that really like resonates with them. Like, I, you know, I've worked with people who, you know, I could teach thought stopping to five people. And based on who they are, their personality, the way they're wired, two of them might love it. Two of them will say no chance. And one of them will go, I'll give it six months. <laughs> So there's this whole sort of confounding variable of who people are, what works for them, the way their brain is wired, the type of personality that they have. But yeah, generally speaking, those types of skills are really good. You know, they're they're helpful when people understand the power that you have over pausing thoughts, over, you know, backing up and looking at your thoughts from a different vantage point. Um, perspective positioning is another great one. Uh, perspective positioning is basically like, when you get faced with a, a challenge or some adversity, maybe you're an offender bender or something like that. Whatever the first thing that comes into your mind is you, the perspective that you've taken right now today based on your current mood and your past experiences. But if 10 people got in that same fender bender, there'd be 10 different perspectives. One person could get out of the car and absolutely berate the other person who rear-ended them. Another person could get out of the car and say, oh, my gosh, are you OK? I'm OK. Is everyone OK? Let's pull over to the side of the road and we could do eight other versions of that. So it's important to sort of mentally contrast that your reaction isn't the only one available. We actually need to build a case for some of these other options that are out there and help people take ownership and more accountability for the choice element of how they react and respond to different situations. So building out that whole perspective is an exercise that I find really helpful, like literally just sitting down with an athlete and looking at, okay, this was your perspective. Let's come up with five other ones that you've seen other teammates use in that same situation or your favorite player would use in that situation or a leader that you really respect, maybe, maybe your mom, how would she have reacted to that? And let's just gain an appreciation for the different options that were in front of you. So it, it speaks to individual differences, obviously. And um, this is an argument that we obviously share a lot at Basketball Immersion is that we can't coach everyone the same skill-wise because everyone's at a different level. You can talk about different progression, but also everyone has a different solution to a certain extent that works for them. And that's mm -hmm. what you're saying. But often that when we bring in a sports psychologist or someone like yourself, we put every the whole team in a classroom and they all listen to you talk about the same thing. But really, the most valuable part is what you're the base of all your work is, is individually, it's different for each of them. It is. And, you know, I like to think of um, there's three things that really will dictate if we wanted to get extremely nuanced and predictive almost about how different individuals are going to absorb that same presentation it comes down to, to three things that overlap with one another in like a, a venn diagram kind of a classic venn diagram model and it's personalities values and skills and all of those things are different but they have things in common with the other thing that they're overlapping with the most important distinguishing factor between those three elements is actually the rate of change. So the rate of change on personality is very slow. Like we're talking 10 to 12 years. If someone really set out to kind of rewire their natural extroverted tendency into a more introverted one, because that's a, that's a biological, like 50% of that is hereditary for one. So when you think about like, why is a, player like that? Like, why is their personality so embedded in that particular way? Think of it this way. 50% of how they're wired is hereditary. So um, in their genes. And in most cases, not all, but in most, 
that player or that young athlete also lives in a home with the two people or one of the people who contributed to that gene. And so the behaviors that they're modeling are a reflection of what's in their biological system. So you're, you're steeped in this way of operating. So you think about nature and nurture, it's both there, right? In this personality combination. So the rate of change on that is really slow. Values is medium because there's not a hereditary aspect of it. It's really just environmental. And then skills are, are fast, like depending on the skill, obviously, but and the level of training, but things in the skills category can shift over a couple weeks, can shift over a couple months. And that's not a very long time when you think about how difficult behavior change is. But when you get into values and personality traits, you start to deal with a different sort of scale. So in the example that you gave, those are the variables at play when you think this is how someone is going to interpret this information. If we think about um, just from a personality trait lens, you could put something out into the world that obviously comes from your own personality bias. And if we divided the room into those who score really high in conscientiousness and those who score low, the group who scores really high on that personality trait is going to love all the detail and they're going to remember it. And they're probably going to have a notebook with highlighters that put things into actual categories themselves that they've you know, perceived from your presentation. The low conscientious scores probably don't have a notebook. Like they're sitting there going, I just kind of, it just all goes in and I just kind of make sense of it. And that's how I prefer to operate. Then we go down a level further and go, well, let's look at the value systems, the cultures that those different personality traits grew up in, because personality traits are pervasive across the world. So now you've got a high conscientious who grew up in an environment that also valued it. So maybe they had a parent or someone who, who taught them the way to do things that matches this concept of conscientiousness. And maybe you have another one of those people who's in a completely different environment. They, they've been coached by someone for 10 years who discouraged the obsession with categories and linear thinking and all like they've just been pulled in another direction. So, I mean, we could go on forever with all the combinations, but I'll just kind of leave it there to say there's a lot going on. When you think about like, why did one player receive it different than another? It's extremely intense. <laughs> well, I'm nodding because I can picture the, those differences in those examples that you gave from the my experience right. with players. I mean, it's just it's absolutely the case. Uh, and and sometimes we interpret that as a coach is, oh, this player doesn't care. But really, it's just different, right? It's just how they take in the information and all that interaction. So um, mm -hmm. I, I'm wondering then, like you, you talk about developing a greater degree of emotional intelligence. You talk about getting regular feedback. So can you talk about that process? How does that work? How does that look? And why is that so important? Well, I mean, my sort of passion for feedback is really just anchored in this whole idea of deliberate practice. And the idea of deliberate practice is, is that you need to, at some level of interval that's appropriate, see how what you're doing measures up against a known standard of performance and self-regulate based on that known standard. But this equation is a lot more complex than most coaches, I think, understand. Because our implicit feedback system is far more powerful than our explicit. So the implicit system is, it's us regulating based on our own perception and feelings of what's going on. The explicit is, forget your own perceptions. I'm telling you that it's not like this. So some, something on the, the external is, is giving you that feedback and overriding your own feeling and perception of it. Overcoaching is the worst thing you can do for the nervous system. And the research shows this repeatedly over and over and over again. So if you think about um, from when we're babies, how, how important our implicit learning systems are. Babies, before they can uh, learn to communicate, and I'm going to have one in two months, so I'm getting ready for all this uh, in my own household. 
Congrats. Yeah, thanks. Before they can communicate, understand language processing, anything, they'll start mimicking mom and dad. That is based on an extremely implicit system. They have no explicit skills. None of those cognitive processes have really been built, right? So they're able to, to develop a lot of skills by just absorbing unconsciously what's going on around. They don't even know they're doing it. And people think, well, okay, but what's an adult example? Well, the net scores in the U.S. Uh, across all the different golf clubs in the uh, USA for two weeks after the Masters improved by over seven strokes. Mm. And the reason for this, the, the predicted reason for this, is because so many people are just watching golf. They're just watching the best. No, none of them are taking notes. No one's telling them to, how to change their swing. Imagery is the language of movement. So you're seeing enough great swings that your body can actually replicate that motion with more accuracy than, say, the middle of the summer when you haven't watched golf in, in three months. All of this links back to this feedback process. And the way that they study this is, is say I asked you, um, to put 17% of your body weight using one foot down on a, a, a pressure sensor that will know exactly how much pressure you're putting on it. Say I asked you to do that and you're like, oh my gosh, okay. I like so many variables to, to process, right? And you do it and then I say, here's how it went. And then you do it. Then I say, here's how it went. And then I do it and I say, here's how it went. If I give you 100% feedback on every repetition, you will get good fast that day. Yeah. You'll show up the next day and be atrocious. The transfer on that kind of feedback is very, very poor. Now let's reduce that. Can I just connect that? That's the example. Yeah, yeah. The, that's similar to blocked and random practice and the exactly. reversal effect, right? Yeah. Exactly, right? That, yeah. And this is why I think the nature of feedback is so, so important because people think, well, it's got to be against a known standard. And I'm going to be a great deliberate practice coach. And then they go out on the water um, with their, you know, canoe kayak team. And they tell them their stroke rate every five minutes, every day for six months. And they tell them exactly what their time is because they want them to constantly know that you're either not there yet or you're there or whatever. But when those athletes show up the next day, they have nothing in them internally to regulate that themselves. And guess what? When they go race. No one's there to yell their stroke to them. They can't hear shit, <laughs> to be honest. There's so much noise in that environment, right? It's like beach volleyball coaching. Coaches actually can't intervene in the game. So they need to build really creative systems to help these athletes implicitly regulate their performance themselves. And now just to finish that thought about the study so people aren't like, what's the end of the study? If you reduce the feedback to once every five repetitions, to your point about blocked and random, when they show up the next day, they're they're quite good. They're they're like almost half as good as they were at the start of the first day. But by the end of that first day, people think, well, they didn't improve as much, so this is a shitty kind of feedback. They're like, well, no, actually, because it's not you're not baking it into their nervous system. They're just getting better at listening to you. Is that what you really want when they get out there and in pressure situations? It's really fascinating stuff. And uh, I, another thing that you talk about is do your ABCs. Can you explain that? So I can't take credit for this because I've picked it up from uh, Peter Jensen, who I don't know if you're familiar with. He wrote a book called Igniting the Third Factor. Awesome, awesome guy. Uh, he's been a performance coach for the, for the longest time. And I was kind of, I, I don't know, like I got to spend a bunch of time with him, which was really helpful for me in my career. And Peter has this really, really wonderful way of making uh, sometimes the most complex things just seem like absolutely crystal clear. Like it's so simple. Now, it's not easy, but it's simple. It's simple to, to conceptualize. And the ABC concept was, was just Peter's way of helping athletes make or performers in general make quick sense of what to do when they feel a little bit derailed or distracted or whatever in a in a performance and so the a stands for accept 
And there's a lot of content you can bake underneath um, each of these uh, letters. But acceptance is like, I mean, for one, it's like one of the pillars of mindfulness and for good reason. You know, it's the concept of of letting go. And I'm I'm really passionate about helping athletes understand the difference between letting go and giving up. And, you know, like letting go is like creating emotional space for yourself moving forward. You know, when you perceive that as giving up, you're actually bringing on an emotional burden <laughs> that stays with you. So your capacity emotionally is is now less. So acceptance is is a huge part of the, the model. The next one is is just breathe. And breathe like it's it's so easy to say as a coach, like just breathe, right? Breathe, breathe. Everyone's saying, like, go, breathe, take a breath. It it actually it doesn't mean anything unless you have an intimate relationship with what breath means to you. Now, there's an evolutionary part of this that I think people think is maybe more powerful than it is. Like, yeah, of course, if if you can breathe, you're you're alive and like be grateful for the like all like uh, cool. But really, <clears throat> br- breath is proof to me. So I think Kobe, like, I can't find the clip, but years ago I saw a clip um, of Kobe. You know, people were obsessing over his free throw routine. And he said something along the lines of, like, the physiological bet, like, they're like, how do you get your heart rate from here to here on the free throw line? And his point was, like, me taking a breath is just proof that I'm still behind the wheel. That's all, like, to him, that's what it meant. That, That means he's in control. Yeah. Yeah. If I don't have the mental capacity to do my breath, I've lost control. And don't we all need like a check and balance like that in our own performance? So in order for, for Kobe or anyone to feel like I'm still in control, you need to get quite specific about what a breath means to you, how it should feel. Because I can go, oh, I better do my breath and take some garbage breath that doesn't meet any of the requirements that I've practiced. A great breath or a great breathing routine is very specific. There's an amazing clip of Phil um, from a tournament two years ago. And I remember we were watching it as, as sort of like as a coaching staff before the Tokyo Olympics. So this would have been, I don't know, 2021 sometime. Uh, Phil won a huge tournament. I can't remember what it was called, but he had this putt with like thousands of people around the green. And if you zoom in on his breathing, he actually very overtly, when you really look at it, he takes two breaths where his shoulders are actively involved. It's like, and then he takes a few more that are slower. His shoulders are now super quiet. They're down, his breath is down into his stomach and none of that is random. So knowing the anatomy of your breathing routine is the proof. Anyone can just take a breath. You take thousands of them a day. It's not hard to be like, oh, I did my breath. What's your breath? How does it feel? What are the nuances of it that you have a relationship with? So accepting, breathing. And then the last one is C, which is choose. And Ignite the Third Factor, Peter's book, is basically a book about the power of choice. So it's nature, nurture, and choice. Like, yeah, we have what the environment is giving us. Yeah, we have who we are in our DNA. But also you can choose. And I remember the the opening monologue of his book is about the fact that Nelson Mandela went to prison for over 20 years for something he should not have been in prison for. And he came out a better person. So the element of choice in that situation, obviously, it's really extreme. But we always have a capacity to figure out which direction do I want to go. It's a higher level processing. It's not the monkey brain. It's the human brain, I always make the joke, like people say monkey brain, lizard brain. And I'll say to athletes, like, just remember, if you're in there, you're playing like a monkey. You're playing like a lizard. Do you want to play like a human? Do humans win championships or do lizards? <laughs> you can't get stuck down there. Right. So if you lose the element of choice, you know, you're you're just kind of a primal thing running around. And all of us can do that. There's no competitive advantage in it. Hey coach, I just want to let you know Basketball Immersion is proud to partner with Just Play. 
I had the chance to spend some time with just play in New Orleans at the Final Four, and I was blown away by the next-level simplicity and effectiveness of this all-in-one solution for coaches to prepare faster and connect with today's players. Just Play provides an elite experience for coaches to better teach, scout, and recruit on one platform. Just Play integrates with any video editing solution to streamline how you prepare and engage your players. Sign up for a free demo, www.justplaysolutions.com forward slash bball immersion. Well, I can't wait to read Peter's book. And it struck me a little bit like Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, that you you can't control necessarily what happens, but you can control your response to it and that type of thing. And that's really the big focus of so much of what you're doing. And what I really like about Interlogic and some of the stuff you're doing too is it's 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 countering some of this toxic culture that exists in sports. Because what you're basically saying is that we can create a safe and supportive environment but also have high performance and alignment. And some people don't think those two things go together. The safe and supportive environment actually leads to success. So can you connect that a little bit more for us? Yeah. So I'll, I mean, this is a, I hope a smooth transition from <laughs> sort of independent or individual factors over to more collective factors. And that's actually central to what our company does because if we made a list of all the reasons that measurement is entrenched in sport, it's a long list. It's, uh, you know, validity, motivation, action planning, uh, equity. There's all kinds of reasons why you must have good measures. But most of the measures in sport are, are individual right now. So over 95% of the things being measured in most sport organizations come from either a wearable or something that individuals are inputting in an athlete management system um, that talks to their, their own personal state, right? And so this transition from a very individual focus to how the group as a whole folks is, it's, it's an essential aspect of tribal leadership. Like it, since the beginning of time, you know, if all the members of the tribe are depleted, but they share enough of an impetus to act on something together, you can do anything. So this concept of, of being more measurable in a team space is really, really, really important. But to measure culture is, is a thing that needs a lot of TLC and research and, and the right work behind it to get to a place where it's normalized and and utilized at the level these other measures are used. When you, I think in like a group of 50, there's, there's like over 1200 one-on-one relationships or something like that. So it's not easy to get to the core of like, how are we functioning together? <laughs> um, I'll use an example to, cause you mentioned like the model that we use to measure culture. And I think it's really important, kind of central to what we do and, and, whatever your next question is, which I'm excited to see where you take all this. <laughs> when I was working with the, the softball team uh, before Tokyo, um, so our women's softball team in Canada won a bronze medal, made, made history, one run away from being in the, in the final. Um, one of the things that we did uh, a couple of months, like six or seven months before the team left for Tokyo was we used a test uh, that I was lucky enough to be trained in at a course in California on um, neurofeedback, which is a, another avenue we can go down. But it's called the quick test. And the quick test is, is 21 minutes of choice reactions being thrown at you on a screen. And all you have to do is click on the ones that you're supposed to click on and resist clicking on the ones that you're not. But in advance of doing this exercise, you're told that there's two measures that matter. Your accuracy, which is a measure of are you clicking on the right ones and not clicking on the ones you shouldn't be, and your speed. So the actual millisecond reaction time that you uh, use to make that click when you do. These two things are, are in direct competition with one another. If you want to be more accurate, then you may have to slow down. <laughs> if you want to be really fast, 
you're going to have to probably sacrifice some accuracy. And so the report that this generates is, and again, it's very simple. It's either a brick wall image or a brick wall with a brick missing in it that gets put on the screen like in a flash and you're just choosing, do I click or not click? For, for 20 minutes is a long time. So what it tells you about an athlete is their sort of natural way, and especially in a sport like softball, their natural way of, of reacting under pressure, are they going to sacrifice speed and just sort of go the conscientious route and make sure they get them all right? Or are they going to sacrifice accuracy? And they're going to be the fastest there, but they're going to get 67 clicks wrong. There's few people who can find a balance. And that's why the test is so awesome because it creates competitiveness in the team. There's a few people who find a way to score well above average on both. And then it, it's an extreme amount of discipline. It's an extreme amount of uh, focus and attention to detail and like the zone that you have to get in. I raise this example because you kind of used it in the intro of, of this concept of culture. People are under the impression that if you want to focus on humans, you have to sacrifice the focus on the result. If you want to focus on the results, you have to sacrifice the focus on the humans. And when I say the humans, I mean things like well-being, like their safety. I mean, thing, very, very basic human elements. Um, you know, the empowerment of these people, like hearing their voice giving them a voice. What we do is we help teams understand where they're over-indexing. So very much so like that report that the athlete would get on, here's your way of operating. Let's change that for the better. Let's try and keep the same accuracy, but increase your speed. As an example, we provide um, sport organizations with the same kind of report that says, look, you've got like a really high focus on on the system, on the results, on the performance. And as a result, you, you know, you're lacking in these five pillars of, of the human side. And that gets presented on a grid. And so we help them over time reframe that and go, okay, here's how we can increase our score in this human element and, and still perform really, really well. And in fact, when you are able to increase that focus on the human element, Oftentimes you perform better in the culture space. So it's this intersection between those two. And that's the model or the methodology that we like to bring forward to help groups understand where their gaps are culturally. So I don't know where I was going before, but now I'm going somewhere else. And this is good. <laughs> uh, I love this. So for, for me, like it struck me just as these contradictions, right? The difference between intensity and comfort. For a player. Mm. And, and we're always trying to push intensity, but sometimes it makes them uncomfortable and sometimes that's necessary. But what you're saying with this quick test is that the best players can find a balance. And that's ultimately what my role is as a coach is to find balance for players. Is that what you're kind of getting to in terms of a practical application of this? Absolutely. As soon as someone can apply the mental model of, oh, I'm compromising that in service of that, they're put in a self-regulatory state where they can try and sustain that because they have awareness of it now and find ways to nudge that other one forward. And if you can get up to a place where you're performing above average in both of these quote unquote contradictory things, which we know aren't with enough um, upskilling, um, you're in a really good place. And, you know, it's very well known, like getting to the level of performance that is, you know, completely unnatural, like less than the 0.1% or however you want to define that end of the bell curve that we know certain humans exist on. This does a really nice job of help helping them understand why that is such a low number. It's not just because everything is hard in its own bucket. It's because getting good at that one has an effect on that one. And as you see the relationship between the two, you start to understand how you need to manage that relationship between being fast and accurate, or as a culture, between being very human-focused and results-focused at the same time. They, they really do intercept. 
So I'm so fascinated by the practical application of this. So say I'm I'm an NCA Division One program and I work with Interlogic. What what is actually happening that helps my program, helps my players? Because this is the bottom line for me: is how can I impact player development and and obviously success winning? What we offer, I guess, first and foremost in what we're trying to create and build here is a holistic way to evaluate performance. And if we take it a step further, it's a holistic way to evaluate collective performance. Because there's lots of ways to evaluate individual performance presently. So we move beyond results and medals, and we offer a way for people to see the gaps that exist within their functioning, within their organization, that are sometimes extremely fundamental on a human level. And we know that there's a really strong relationship between that human foundation and the sustainability of success. There's lots of groups that you might have a flash of success that compromised all the human stuff, but you're not going to be able to keep it moving forward. So what actually happens inside of um, our uh, product or our platform is and it's a good example because we have lots of athletic departments that use this platform. It offers the ability to do a 360 analysis. So similar to like lots of leaders would resonate with like, oh, I've done lots of great 360s. I evaluate myself and you know, six other people evaluate my leadership. This kind of takes that concept and does it on a cultural level. So all of the questions are framed in the sense of the program, the organization, the way in which we do things around here versus how I feel, like me personally. So you're kind of taking it from the lens of the way I observe our environment is blank. And so what it does is it it puts in the hands of all the members of an organization, sometimes that could be thousands, and it gives them uh, 60 questions that relate back to our human factors and what we call our system factors, which is basically the performance results side of the equation. Um, and they score all those things on a, on a sliding scale of one to 10. And it produces this extremely robust report so that organizations can see exactly where those cultural gaps are, starting at the basic level of those two big axes of human and system, and then drilling down to as fine a granular metric as you would like. And when I say that, what I mean is you could filter this one question in the value alignment pillar, which is one of our pillars in the system. You can look at that one question spliced by any variable you want. So you can splice it by first-year students. You can splice it by first-year males. You can splice it by first-year black males. You can splice it by role. So you can look at coaches, athletes, sports science, administrative. And you're basically looking for those red flags. So where's a red flag that says, whoa, our psychological safety among this group is significantly lower, multiple standard deviations lower than both the benchmark and the norm inside of our environment. Something's going on there. So we help with that gap identification. Um, so that organizations cannot waste time and money on trying to change and build better culture completely blind, <laughs> basically. Yeah, so it avoids us as coaches, obviously, in a very hard to measure area. It avoids us, again, just like we talked about in coaching, me coming up with the solution that I think it is versus the data or, you know, as in this example, you helping me identify the gap. Yeah, and that's why it's holistic in multiple ways. It's holistic from the lens of the the KPIs inside of it are are holistic in in their nature, but it's also a unique opportunity to to be very well rounded or balanced in the perceptions that are going on because oftentimes you'll just ask one group or a group of leaders who let's say, and this is just from a recent example, that nine of the ten people sitting at that table are white males. And they're having a conversation around what needs to change around here culturally. Well, how do you think your sense of belonging would score compared to this other group over here? 
like there's huge gaps and differences that it's like fish discover water last, you know, like you're, you're in it. <laughs> what you need is an independent third party to say, actually, the facts suggest this and it's airtight because it's coming from all the different types of respondents and filters that you could put in into the system to say, factually, here's the different perceptions inside of your culture. So it strikes me as a huge component of this is, is being vulnerable, especially as the leader. But generally for the whole group, this vulnerability piece, which I know you referenced Brene Brown already, but this piece is so important for us as a modern leader, isn't it? Well, there's an extremely strong correlation, a statistical correlation between transformational leadership and effective culture change. There's a negative relationship or correlation between transactional leadership and effective culture change. And when I say effective, I mean the changes happen, but they're also sustainable and result in outcomes that support the fact that um, things have gotten better over a 10-year period. So that vulnerability piece is is really like so closely tied into transformational leadership, right? It's transformational leaders above all else have an ability to tap into personal values and relationships that mesh with organizational values and relationships. And so they're bridging, they're tying together the human beings with the mission, the purpose, the, the functioning of the organization. Transactional leaders kind of do the opposite in that, yeah, you have these like values that are organizationally driven and you will actually compromise, sacrifice, do whatever it takes to impose those on people who may not see it that way. And so there's a vulnerability in that process of building a relationship with someone that goes, hey, what do you value? And how does that mesh with what we value around here? How can we get closer on those things? Even if it means hearing the tough news, you know, Brene, or is it Susan Scott would say like something along the lines of, uh, you, you think having this conversation, the reason you won't have this conversation is because it'll take too long not having it takes way longer. <laughs> Vulnerability is at the core of that principle, right? Have the conversations, be open to it. So so trans, I'm glad, glad we got into this transactional versus transformational. And again, let's just go to a simple example of running. You know, this traditional run or else versus run because it helps you improve and connecting it for the player to something that's going to help them transform rather than a threat is a key component of all this, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's the problem with with like fear is a is a common component of transactional leadership. The problem with fear based uh, behavior change is people build up a tolerance to the type of fear you create, and so you have to keep increasing it in order for it to be effective. So whatever you threaten before only has a shelf life of X amount of times, and then eventually you have to threaten things that are either completely immoral, unethical, like inappropriate. So you give yourself a ceiling by using fear uh, as, as a factor. So this, this more um, human-centric transformational approach to the leadership just needs to become more normalized. Like the culture crisis happening, and maybe that's an extreme way to put it, but there's a big problem in Canadian sport right now publicly. Um, you know, in regards of culture and different national sport organizations. And people are bouncing around all these different ideas of how to solve it. And we're lucky as a company that, you know, we were a partner with Own the Podium to help them, you know, make this transition to being more holistic as a as a company. Um, but, you know, part of what I can't help thinking is we got to send a lot of coaches and leaders back to school <laughs> or we need to to bring in new ones because clearly there's a way of operating being leader led that is reaching that level of inappropriate unethical immoral um and there's really no other way to shift that than to dramatically upskill people who are there in a quick amount of time or to introduce you know some more forward thinking modern leaders who are who are uh, open to a transformational style and just really quickly this relates back to the personalities values and skills because if you make the assumption that, well, this is just all a bunch of skills and we can change those in six months, 
that's such a naive way to look at leaders who have been involved for 30 years. Like that you're dealing with with a little bit of skill, but mo- like the chunk of it is in the values bucket and another small chunk of it is in personality. That values bucket is a minimum of years in terms of the rate of change, you know, for for them to really get to a place where, hey, I value this vulnerability, this openness, this this um, emotionally based leadership style to the point where they can build the skills to live it. So the foundation of basketball immersion has always been, is there a better way to be able to say, mm-hmm. okay, because here's the challenge that I want you to counter because I hear this all the time, but it works. <laughs> so yeah, three man weave, we can run three man weave every practice and we can win a championship. Yeah. It works. So why would I change? And that's kind of the mindset of a lot of coaches, yeah, as you know, in North America, especially, and I can only speak to that because I've been around them a lot more that it's like, okay, you're telling me to be transformational, but wait a minute, transactional is getting me paid and I'm making money and it works. So why would I change? Yeah. So the, the one, the one thing that I would say, cause this, you just maybe opened Pandora's box a little bit in a good way. The obvious thing is, well, we should get aligned on what success looks like for you. That's where we should start right now. Because if you're saying it works, to me, it means you're achieving something that is intimately tied to why you're doing it the way you're that you're doing it. And so maybe that's keeping your job. Maybe that's um, being in the top five of the rankings or something like that. Is your definition of success around here healthy? Because if we were to adjust that definition of success to include things like to build lifelong learners, uh, to include things like to create holistic leaders that have a positive impact on the community, to include other things aside from on you know what I could look up on a, on a stat sheet on the on the website, um, then you may not feel like your statement is as true. <laughs> You know, and it's funny because they all suggest they do that, right? There's not a coach in the world that doesn't say I build better people, right? right. <laughs> but but it comes back to what you all started with, which is this concept of that baby. What are mm. they learning implicitly from you rather than what are you talking about in this, you know, meeting that we're talking about being better people, right? They're learning more from what they see than from what you're saying. Right. Yeah, it's almost like they're saying well, hey, the way I define this stuff is tolerated around here. <laughs> well, it definitely and, is, yeah. Yeah, right? So it almost goes to like, you know, a, a, another tier of the organization in a way that um, taps into a higher level of sort of like leadership hierarchy and, and organizational mission and values. But I think part of the, the reality is that there's people who who we can't change. And they're okay with the consequences of the way that that they do things um, because they're most times, you know, blinding themselves to the actual consequences of that to to protect the status quo that is benefiting them. You know, I, I think just fundamentally as a signal, you know, when people are are sort of disinterested in innovation or disinterested in in good research or good evidence or good insight on you know, some new things coming out in terms of what sport is doing in the world, the role it plays, et cetera. Ultimately, it's going to go somewhere not good. And it's it's really challenging um, to help that one person change their behavior. And that's part of, I think, the consulting game is you do have to, to some degree, align yourself with people who share a certain critical mass of, of values and and purpose and vision, because you could just bang your head against the wall forever um, with certain individuals. Well, and then again, Pandora's box, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the NCA model now, but with the transfer portal, the difference now is kids have a choice. And, and, and ultimately, coaches are blaming the kids, of course, in a lot of set- settings, but the difference is kids have a choice. So they don't yeah. have to put up with it and they don't have to stay there and deal with that type of behavior. So you know, from a from a job preservation perspective, obviously it makes sense too to work like a company like yours to be able to again identify the gaps and work towards those things. 
Yeah, we always say that the in our company, the the hidden or secret or or unseen metric that means more than any other metric that we actually produce in the report is the the partnership itself. Because the people who are interested in partnering with us are are really showing a sense of transformational leadership approach in and of itself and that they want real feedback on what's going on. So if we get through this, if we're going through like all kinds of hoops, like deep-rooted emotional hoops to just get someone to the point where they believe in culture feedback, it's usually a sign that like maybe we shouldn't work together because this is only going to get harder when we're saying to you like, well, this is a factual signal saying that, you know, um, trust is low <laughs> in your organization. Bryce, this has been tremendous. I mean, so many, so many places to stimulate our thinking. So where can people find out more information about Interlogic? Yeah, so um, you can find us, uh, you can find our website at interlogic.com. Um, that will, you know, be your main portal into what we do and anything else you want to find out. Um, look us up on uh, Twitter. Um, just search Interlogic and uh, you know, I think it's at Interlogic team is the, is the real handle, but that'll come up. And then just, uh, again, just Interlogic on LinkedIn. Um, you know, we're pretty active on there. We, we share lots of goodies, uh, little insights, threads, et cetera. So um, yeah, I hope we uh, gain some, some traction here through this podcast. <laughs> well, great stuff. And I uh, really appreciate you taking time and being able to share your information. Thank you for listening to the Basketball Podcast. Learn more from some of the best coaches in the world at immersionvideos.com. At immersionvideos.com, our unwavering commitment to you is to offer the tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. If you're a better coach now than you were yesterday, we've done our job, and so have you. The goal is to focus on authentic sharing of resources you can use to help your players and teams improve. Drills, tactics, techniques, philosophies, practice design, and so much more will be shared from numerous coaches, including Nate Oates, Doug Novak, Aaron Fern, Dave Smart, and so many more to come. Go to ImmersionVideos.com now to check out all the products and follow at ImmersionVideos on Twitter to keep up to date. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at BasketballImmersion.com newsletter.